0: Jeremiah 36, and um, while you're finding your way there, uh, if you have not yet stopped by the table in the lobby, we do have a few more of you uh, church members that need to pick up your tithing books for 2018, and so um, I have Miss Mary Verones here, and so I'll leave this here, you can pick that up after church, uh, but um, I picked hers up because I knew that uh, there's a pretty good chance she wouldn't be here today. Uh, She's one of uh, our shut-ins. Jeremiah 36 in your Bibles. And uh, men, sign up for our men's rally we have coming up. We're going to be eating stuffed bacon burgers, uh, uh, baked beans, french fries, and corn on the cob. We're going to have skits. We're going to have really good uh, preaching. We're going to have great fellowship together. If you're looking to make this a part of your community life, let me really recommend you come to our activities and, uh, you'll be really glad that you did. Uh, you kind of shake everyone's hand and smile at them on a Sunday morning. You might hang around after church and talk to somebody for a few minutes, but the way to really get to know the other men in our church, or the other ladies in our church, uh, depending on, uh, what you're going for there, is, uh, just, uh, to come to our activities and, uh, you'll, you'll, uh, you'll benefit from that greatly. So, uh, that will be, uh, Saturday, Uh, December 27th, that's for all men, and if you have sons, you can bring them along as well. More details of that are in your bulletin. Alright, Jeremiah 36, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. And we'll be looking at the first two verses together here. And we'll be um, uh, coming back to this sort of toward the middle of the message. I'll read verse 1 alone, and then we'll read verse 2 out loud together. Verse 1 says, And it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came unto Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take thee a roll of a book, and write therein all the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel, and against Judah, and against all the nations, from the day I spake unto thee, from the day of Josiah, even unto this day. The title of the message this morning is this, A Perfect Book from a Perfect God. A Perfect Book from a Perfect God. Let's pray. I ask, Lord, that this morning you'd guide my words, that you'd help me to uh, say and preach the things that uh, you would if you were standing here. And, Lord, I pray that the Word of God would come alive and would make sense. Lord, this sermon uh, is a foundational sermon in the Back to the Basics series to really lay the groundwork for the rest of 2018 and the messages there. And so, Lord, it's a day that we will uh, work hard to explain and articulate how authentic your book is, and how true it is, and how perfect it is. And so, Lord, I pray, God, that um, uh, you give us all great attention. May the words go past our ears, into our minds, and then down into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Throughout this uh, year, my goal is to bring you several messages to help you understand the doctrines of the Bible. Um, now, what is a doctrine? We covered this last week. That word doctrine means teachings. Teachings. So you open up the Bible, and it's this large book, and it's got all these these and thous and thines and, and and those and and shalls and chants and whatever the language in there is, and you go, oh, it's too too hard. Uh, and so uh, you, and then you hear a preacher use a word like propitiation, and you go, huh? Or uh, he'll ramble off justification and sanctification. And you'll go, what is the difference and what does that mean? And so through the year, my goal is to make the Bible easy to understand for you. And so if you attend the services of 2018, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night... And I'd encourage you to attend as many of those as your schedule allows, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. Uh, if you'll attend those and you'll uh, come and take notes and sit up straight and tall and listen and and, and soak in uh, the messages of 2018, my prayer is that you will know the Bible in an authentic way. You'll know the doctrines and the teachings of the Bible and you'll be able to have a stronger faith For it, for some of you here this year, 2018 will be uh, every sermon will be a brand new revelation to you. It'll be a brand new thing you'll learn that you've uh, never heard before. Because honestly, you're new to this whole church idea, and that's okay. There's a whole bunch of you here that's that way, and so you'll be able to learn with, uh, with that that crowd. For others of you that have been going to church for a long time, 2018 will maybe fill in the gaps of where you've wondered what something meant, but never really knew. And you know a lot, but you don't know it all. Or uh, you know a lot, but you don't know all of the basics. And so um, I'm hoping that 2018 will really help establish a strong foundation for our faith as a church. Uh, I remember when I was a 16-year-old boy. I was sitting in a uh, in a team camp, and I was listening to some preacher. He was just up there preaching some hellfire and brimstone sermon. I mean, it was hot. He was yelling and screaming and and throwing chairs. Not quite throwing chairs, but he he was preaching hard and uh, he was really going to town. And and I got to daydreaming. I'm just going to be honest. I got to daydreaming. And this thought crossed my mind. And it was a very sobering, scary thought for a teenage boy to have. I thought, I have been indoctrinated since my birth to believe what I believe. What if the Baptists are wrong, and the, and the Mormons are right. What if the Bible is not true? What if I've just been fed something that's a lie by parents who are well-intending and have bought the lie themselves? And I was scared. I'm just going to tell you, I was scared. I sat there. Now, teenagers are good at thinking objectively, right? Right? Four or five year old asks why because they think you know everything. A 14, 15 year old asks why because they think they know everything. That's how it works. Um, you know, I had been living on the curtails of my parents' faith my entire life. And while I had put my faith and trust in Christ to save me as a small boy, um, I needed to know what I believed for myself. Not just for my parents. And so I went home from that teen camp. And I decided it was time to just scrap everything I'd been told and start over. I needed to validate, and I needed to know why I believed what I believed. I decided logically that I needed to begin with the Bible. There are a lot of religions that use the Bible. Um, But if the Bible's false, then all of those religions would be false. And then I would need to start on a new journey of discovering which book is true, or is there even a book at all? Is there even a God? And so I ask myself, is the Bible true? And if it is true, what does it really teach? Is what I'm being told accurate, or are verses being taken out of context and twisted? By the way, I wish more people in other religions would do this. I, I, I fear that too often we have people who let everybody else in society think for themselves and they won't think for themselves. They, uh, they vote red or blue because their parents voted red or blue. Uh, they go to the Catholic Church or the Methodist Church or the Presbyterian Church or the Baptist Church because that's what their parents did. But if you really sat them down and begin to question them on what they believe, they really don't know. Now, if you come to church here just because it's your habit, I'm glad you come. But Christian, at some point, you have to figure out what your faith is for yourself. You may not be writing on your parents' faith anymore, but are you writing on the preacher's faith? Um, Today I want to show you what I discovered as a teenage boy. I would like to show you how amazingly accurate the Word of God is. I didn't just come back with my question answered. The question was answered in a slam-dunk manner. A slam-dunk manner. I propose that many Christians do not understand the power that God's Word has. They underestimate its power because they do not understand its author. The purpose of the sermon today is twofold. The first purpose is to convince you and prove to you that the Bible is flawless and 100% accurate. The second purpose of the message this morning is to inspire you to value it and to go out and try your best to live by it. There's uh, two contradicting messages being preached uh, in our ears, and it's been this way since birth for all of us. The first message is God's message from the Bible. The second message is the world's message, which oftentimes is in direct opposition to the Bible. Now, for our senior saints that were born many, 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 many years ago, good to have you back, by the way. The cold kept some of them away. Good to have uh, you back. The Bible was valued a whole lot more in society when you were young than it is now. But there were even winds blowing against the Bible when you were little as well. I'm sure you're aware. We get into habits, and we do what the culture tells us to do. It's time to throw all that up to the wind and say, doesn't match the Bible. Let me tell you something, as a pastor and as a Christian, who's been a Christian for approaching 30 years this April. The joyous, most joyous, happiest people I know are people that do their best to live by the Bible. I said in a sermon a few weeks back that I've never seen uh, a married couple following the Bible's pattern in my office, throwing pots and pans at each other, ready to go to the divorce court. Never seen it. Never seen it. Oh, but I've seen plenty of couples that were living in contradiction to Scripture who were ready to kill each other. And I don't mean actually kill each other. You know what I mean. Um, I've seen plenty of people who... Uh, who uh, go and live it up and live the party life and have a good time. The world wants to tell you that's fun. I've stood by deathbeds, cirrhosis of the liver. I have watched uh, people die from lung cancer. I've seen a lot of things, but I've never seen someone who's lived their life doing their very best to abide by Scripture come back and say, Pastor, I am so miserable being a Christian. just never seen it. I've never seen Now, I know people who are miserable that love the Bible, but they're not really following the Bible because the Bible says the joy of the Lord is my strength. Um, You can have fun in your home and still hold the Bible up high. We have a whole lot of fun in our home. This morning, we're going to look at four truths about the book of truth as we consider this message God's. Uh, a perfect book from a perfect God. Let's jump right in here this morning. Number one, notice the author of the Bible. The author of the Bible. Alright, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 is our theme verse this year. Verses 16 and 17 are... And we looked at it uh, last week, but we're going to look at it again briefly here. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Inspiration. That word inspiration means that God breathed out the words and told the men who were writing down the Bible what it was they were to say. They were audibly told What to put in the Bible. Turn over to Psalm chapter number 12. You're in Jeremiah. should just be a few books back to the left there. Psalm is usually in the middle of everybody's Bible. It is also the largest book of the Bible. Psalm chapter 12 and verse number 6 there. So the Bible itself proclaims itself as a perfect book. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. God has given us His book. God has authored the book. It is God's book. Psalm chapter 12, look at verse 6. It says there, "...the words of the Lord are pure words, pure words, as silver, tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them." From this generation forever. Now, the book of January or the month of January on Sunday mornings, for most of the month, we're going to be talking about the validity of the Bible, the accuracy of the Bible. I've got a couple more sermons coming up uh, the next couple Sunday mornings, and this will be the main topic. And again, the reason being is I really can't teach you about the doctrines of the Bible until I can get you to buy in that the Bible is truly God's word. And that needs to be rock solid in your head. That needs to be very firmly established. And so... in the coming weeks we're going to look at the preservation of scriptures down into our English language another week we're going to talk about the King James version of the Bible that's the version we use here and we're going to talk about why we use that here and why uh, we uh, hold that one up above all the other English uh, uh, translations that have been given but today the point is not uh, to, to show you why the King James or why it's preserved it's to show you that God is the original author of the Bible and he got it here to earth let me give you a. An example of this in Scripture. Turn back to Jeremiah 36 where we just were. And we're going to read those first two verses we read earlier. I'm going to put the emphasis uh, on a couple of different phrases here in the the, the, uh, chapter. Jeremiah 36 verse 1 says, And it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came unto Jeremiah. Notice this. From the Lord. This was not Jeremiah's writings. This came... From the Lord, saying, "Take thee a roll of a book and write therein all the words that I have spoken unto thee. I have spoken." So Jeremiah is going to write down in a book the words that God is going to give him. This is the same process God used with every single author of the Bible. All right. So uh, uh, look, uh, l- let's look further at this. All right. Uh, look down at verse number twenty-one. So Jeremiah has a man named Jehudi, uh, who, uh, or rather, no, Jehudi was uh, worked for the king. Jeremiah had a guy uh, of uh, his name was Elishamah, Elishamah and he was um, the one who would write down the words for Jeremiah. So Jeremiah would get the words from the Lord. He would tell uh, this uh, servant of his, and the servant would write down verbatim what God had given here. Look at verse twenty-one. So the king sent Jehudi to fetch the roll, and he took it out of Elishama the scribe's chamber. And Jehudi read it in the ears of the king and in the ears of the princes, which stood before the king. Now, the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month, and there was a fire in the hearth burning before him. And it came to pass that when Jehudi had read three or four leaves, he cut it with the penknife and cast it in the fire that was on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire uh, that was on the hearth. So he's reading this dark prophecy that God had given Jeremiah. Jehudi is reading this dark prophecy to the king, and the king is getting angry over what he's hearing because it's basically fire and brimstone that's going to be rained down on Jerusalem for their wickedness. So Jehudi, in order to appease the king's wrath, begins to cut out these scriptures that were given by God to Jeremiah, and he begins to burn them in the fire. Well, I just have to say, I'm thankful that my God has an impeccable memory. Look down at verse number 27. That poor uh, that poor scribe writer, he had to write it all out twice. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. After that, the king had burned the roll. And the words which Baruch wrote at the mouth of Jeremiah, there's the name of the, uh, of the uh, scribe writer for Jeremiah, Baruch, saying, take thee again another roll and write in it all the former words that were in the first roll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, had burned. Now look down at verse 32. Then took Jeremiah, another roll and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote therein from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the book, which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And there were added besides unto them many like words. Just, Just as God had Jeremiah write out every single word, let me remind you that every word in the Bible was inspired by God. Every single word. So in essence, again, God, and we said this last week, but again, just to just to make sure we get it down strong, God told the authors of the Bible what to write and they wrote it down. So God wrote the Bible and men uh, penned it for God. God literally told them in their ears, breathed into their ears of the writers or whispered exactly what to write. These men may have been the earthly human authors that God chose to use, but God is the supreme author Of the entire Bible. Psalm chapter 119 verse 89 tells us this. It says, Forever, O Lord, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. What's that word forever mean? It means without end. It also means without beginning. The Bible is an eternal book. The Bible was written before God ever created the earth. You say, well, how is God able to do that? Well, my God does not exist inside the realms of time. He can be in yesterday, today, and tomorrow all at once. Because He's God. He's omnipresent. So God could be there uh, at, at before the earth existed. He could look ahead and go to the end of time and see how the earth would end through free uh, men and their free will making their choices. And then He could go back to the beginning and the Bible could be written according to the events that would take place based out of the free will of man. So God authored the Bible. So, there is only one true author of the Bible, and His name is God. Alright, number two, let's look at the authenticity of the Bible. The authenticity of the Bible. Now, if you were a critic, and you listen to the sermon at this point, you would have a very, very, very large critique. Very large critique. Here's what it is. A uh, deep-thinking critic would say this. Just because a book claims itself to be accurate or from God, that does not mean it is true. And they would ask this, where is your outside proof that the Bible has been given to us by God? Is that a fair critique? Just because I write a book and say God told me to write it, does that make it true? Does that make it true? Some of you are really nervous right now. Just because the Bible claims that it was written by God, for someone who's skeptical, that's not enough. Now, for me, that's enough. But when I was 16, it wasn't enough. So let me share with you some things I uncovered about the Bible. By the way, this is really, really good. you ever, ever have anybody question you about why you believe the Bible, I would take copious notes right now. There were 39 or 40 different people that God used to write the Bible. The reason why we're not sure if there was a 40th person or not is we don't know who authored the book of Hebrews. Many people believe it was Paul. If it was Paul, that makes 39 authors. If it was someone other than someone who wrote the other epistles, then that would make 40 authors. Um, God chose, when that book was written, to not have a name attached to it in the writing. So... 39 or 40 different people wrote the Bible. Now, most of these people never met each other. A few of them did, but most of them had never met each other. The Bible was written over a time span of about 1,500 years. All right, so I'm laying laying a foundation here. Stay with me mentally. God chose to write His words from all walks of life. The people who wrote down His words came from all walks of life. Here are some of the professions of the people who wrote the Bible. There were kings, there were shepherds. Can you get any more opposite than that? You have the royal king, and then you have the peasant shepherd. You have scientists, attorneys, an army general, various fishermen. A, uh, he had priests write the Bible, and a physician. Many of these people came from different cultures. So different time spans, different cultures different uh, uh, wealth classes, different backgrounds. For the critic who questions the validity of the Bible, I have this question for him. How could 40 people, who for the most part never met each other, who was spread out over 1,500 years of time, and come from every walk of life and culture imaginable, help write one book that does not disagree with itself in any way? How is that possible? Now, I've said that to someone before, many times before, uh, I've had someone say to me, but there are contradictions in the Bible, and I've done this right here. Show me one. And you know what they do every time? They freeze. Well, I heard somebody say one time that there was. Now, are there some seeming contradictions in the Bible? There are a couple that, uh, if you were to um, get on the internet and look hard, there are a couple uh, most of what uh, is on the internet as contradictions is just silliness. It's, it's not it, even close to a contradiction. There are a couple of places where um, someone could label and say, uh, this is a contradiction. But here's the thing. If you read that verse that they're claiming is a contradiction within the context of the rest of the verses, most of the time the contradiction goes away. If you go back to the original language that the Bible was written in, uh, that Definitely unmuddies the water and makes it very, 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 very clear. And uh, I will say this, is that if the Bible could be discredited, it would have been a long time ago. But it isn't. It isn't. Many uh, religions have been started. Uh, many faiths have begun. In fact, there are over 10,000 different religions in the world today. Um, and most all of them, if they don't use the Bible, have their own book. And guess what those books do? They come and they go. They come and they go. The Bible, since it has been in print, has outsold every book every year, and it's not even been close. Now, if it wasn't true, why would that be the case? Why would that be the case? There are 66 individual books that make up the Bible. There are over 30,000 words in the Bible. There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. With such a large book being written, it is amazing that between Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 and Revelation chapter 2, 22 and verse 21, there are zero, zero contradictions. Now, let me use this example. Some of you in here have heard me use this before if you've been out soul winning with me. Um, and I've ran into someone who doesn't believe the Bible. I'll use this. Most of you have not heard this before. I don't believe. I don't believe I've used this in a service. But if I have, you get to hear it again. Amen. Let's say I picked 40 of the most like-minded individuals in this church. I found the 40 men and women in this church that were the most like-minded. They thought closest to the same. And I put you in a room after church and I said, All right, folks, we are going to write a book together. All right? The topic is immigration reform in the United States of America. That's a pretty complicated topic, isn't it? And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give each one of you a topic, and you're going to write a chapter. We're going to come back in two months. None of you are allowed to talk to each other about your chapters. We're going to come back in two months, and we're going to compile your chapters into a book. And we're going to publish it. Does anybody here believe that that book would have zero contradictions? Does anybody here believe that? There would be lots of contradictions. Forty of the most like-minded people who come from the same culture, most of which come from the same type of wealth class, uh, uh, live in the same city, uh taking mostly the same news, even they would have contradictions. But somehow you have a Bible that covers so many more complex issues than immigration reform. And all those issues that are touched, not one contradiction. Am I convincing you that God wrote the Bible? That God wrote the Bible? We have a book in front of us that is perfect. That is perfect. 2 Peter chapter 1, we looked at these verses last week. Let me go over them again with you. Knowing this verse, verses 20 and 21, knowing this verse that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. It wasn't men making this up, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. When the Bible says came not in old time, it means that at no point were the words of the Bible born or created by a human being? By a human being. So we have the author of the Bible. We have the authenticity of the Bible. Uh, let me show you, it just gets better. Let me give you number three, the axes of the Bible. Or the center, uh, the center point, the focal point of the Bible. Besides all of the factual information that I have just given you, there is one person who unifies every book of the Bible. He can either be found there directly, or he can be found there in shadows, indirectly. It is as though there is a crimson thread that unites each individual book into one solid book. Jesus can be found in every single book of the Bible. All 66 of them. He really is... Either directly or in the shadows, the hero of every book. In Genesis, he is the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he is the Passover land. In Leviticus, he is our high priest. In Numbers, he is the pillar of cloud and fire. In Deuteronomy, he is our prophet, like unto Moses. In Joshua, he is the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he is our judge and lawgiver. In Ruth, he is our kinsman redeemer. In 1st and 2nd Samuel, he is our trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he is our reigning king. In Ezra, he is the rebuilder. In Esther, he is our provision. In Job, he is our ever-living redeemer. In Psalms, he is our shepherd. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he is our wisdom. In the Song of Solomon, he is the loving bridegroom. In Isaiah, he is the prince of peace. In Jeremiah, he is the righteous. Branch. In Lamentation, he is our weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he is the wonder, four-faced man, wonderful four-faced man. In Daniel, he is the fourth man in life's fiery furnace. In Hosea, he is the faithful, forgiving husband. In Joel, he is the baptizer with the Holy Spirit in fire. In Amos, he is our burden bearer. In Obadiah, he is mighty to save. In Jonah, he is our great foreign missionary. In Micah, he is our messenger with Beautiful feet. In Nahum, he is our avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, he is God's evangelist. In Zephaniah, he is our savior. In Haggai, he is the restorer of God's lost heritage. In Zechariah, he is the cleansing fountain. In the house of David for sin and uncleanness. And in Malachi, he is the son of righteousness. In Matthew, he is the king of the Jews. In Mark, he is the servant. In Luke, he is the son of man feeling what you feel. In John, he is the son of God. In Acts. He is the Savior of the world. In Romans, He is the righteousness of God. In 1 Corinthians, He is the rock that followed Israel. In 2 Corinthians, Jesus is the triumphant one, giving victory. In Galatians, Jesus is your liberty. He sets you free. In Ephesians, He is the head of our church. In Philippians, He is your joy. In Colossians, He is your completeness. In First and 2 Thessalonians, He is your hope. In 1 Timothy, He is your faith. In 2 Timothy, He is your stability. In Philemon, He is your benefactor. In truth, he is in Titus he is truth. In Hebrews, he is your perfection. In James, he is the power behind your faith. In first Peter, he is your example. In Second Peter, he is your purity. In first John, he is your life. In second John, he is your pattern. In third John, he is your motivation. In Jude, he is the foundation of your life. In Revelation, he is your coming king. Jesus is the center point of the Bible. He is found in every single book. You know why? Because Jesus' father sat there and said, I'm going to make every book about my precious son who's going to shed his blood to redeem mankind. You know, God looked down at us as a human race, and he said, They're lost. They're lost in sin. But I have a son who's willing to go and become their sin and go through hell for them and create a path back to me. Create a path out of sin and into righteousness. How do I know the Bible's true? Forty men lived over a span of 1,500 years. They came from all different backgrounds and they all wrote about the same person. Who was that person? It was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Number four, and lastly, I give you the authority of the Bible. The authority of the Bible. So we looked at the author of the Bible. It's God. It's a Godhead. It's a trinity. We've looked at the authenticity of the Bible. We've looked at the axes of the Bible. The evidence is overwhelming that God's Word is the instruction manual for your life. It's for your life. I don't believe I have too many critics in the crowd here today. Most of you believe that the Bible was God's perfect word before I began the message this morning. I do hope that you now have a little bit more confidence in why you believe that. Now let's go back and look at our theme verses for 2018. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I would really encourage you to memorize these verses if you have not done so yet. And let's remember the context of the book of Timothy is this was Paul, um, maybe, maybe one of the greatest Christians to walk the earth, although I think Paul would say, quit saying that, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> Christians walk around and say, Paul was the greatest Christian to walk the earth. And Paul says, probably not. I was the cheapest of sinners. Um, but regardless, Paul had the authority to write down the Scriptures. He took Timothy and mentored him and trained him. And so here is Pastor Paul training his preacher boy, Timothy, who's going to step in and pastor several churches here in the early ages of the church. And he's telling him the importance of Scripture as it relates to us. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, freely furnished into all good works. Here God tells us that the Bible was given to us by the very mouth of God for a reason. For a reason. You know what that reason was, Christian? It was to change your life. To change your life. I look out in front of me uh, and I see, I see Christians who are young in the faith, And I see Christians who have been saved for 20, 30, 40 years. But you Christians that were saved 20, 30, 40 years, you haven't always known the Bible the way you do, have you? There was a day where the preacher could get up and say something like, it's a sin to drink alcohol. You'd have been like, what? What? But you've studied the Bible day where you would have heard a preacher say, it's a shame for a man to have long hair. He just said, that is that is crazy. But the more that God has shined his light on your heart, the more uh, that's become clear. Now, I know I just opened two cans of worms, and there's people sitting there going, I can't believe he just said that. My point this morning is not to be judgmental toward anyone who... Um, who who drinks alcohol the truth is god will work on your heart on that topic in his time and in his way when he does listen until he does keep searching for him keep searching for him um one thing i'm key on around here is not um trying to force my way of living on you now i'm going to preach the bible i'm going to preach what it says And I want God's word to impress your heart, not my opinions to impress your heart. If I were to see you in a setting where you uh, were disobeying my message, I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to look down on you. You know why? Because my role is to preach the word. It's God's role to convict you and change you. Unfortunately, I've been in a part of a lot of churches where the people did what was right because they were trying to please the preacher. And I guess uh, it's only human for us to want to attach spiritual things to a person to follow. And we we do need to follow spiritual leaders in our life. I'm not trying to devalue that. Well, what I am trying to do is, he must increase. As John says, John 3.30, I must decrease. Christian, look at me. If you do what's right because I say so, and not because he said so, and when I fail, you'll fail. But if you do what's right because he said so, and you're concerned with pleasing him, he's never going to fail you. He's never going to fail you. Get in your Bible. Get in your Bible and study it and read it. It's profitable. It's authoritative if you let it. Now, here's the thing about the Bible. It is always right. When it says something is wrong, God is not putting up a rule uh, so that we will have to live miserably. Miserably, He doesn't put up a fence around us with the Bible and say, here are the do's and the don'ts, and if you do the don'ts and you don't the do's, uh, then, uh, then uh, the big mean ogre in heaven is going to take his bonking stick and whack you over the head. That's not how the Bible works. God has given us a set of rules to live by. He's given us the do's and the don'ts so that He can protect us. He's trying to protect your happiness and your joy. He's trying to make sure that you can live life to the fullest. And uh, the world feeds a lie to, 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 believe, to people. And they say, the Bible is this list of rules. And if you go off and abide by it, you'll be miserable. And I'm here to tell you that no, I've tried my best to live by the rules. And when I do, I could never be more happy than I am when I'm inside those rules. God has your best interest at heart. And he has written a book that is counter to the culture. He has written a book that flies in the face of what this world tells us to do. Because he knows that the world is filled with perdition and pain and hurt. We must choose to let this be the authority in our life. Now, in my home, I'm the authority. My kids do what they're told. Now they listen to mom. They really listen to dad. If they disobey mom, there's consequences, right? If they disobey dad, there's consequences. So when dad comes home, everyone straightens up a little bit more. Everyone does what's right a little bit better. You know why? Because I'm the authority in the home. Now, the Bible is a little bit different. This book will only be your authority if you let it. You see the difference here? God does not force this on you. But He offers it to you. He said, I've given you a book, an instruction manual to know how to live your life. If you'll take it and read it and study it and learn it and live by it, you'll be so glad that you let this be Your authority. But it's your choice. It's your choice. The goal of the message today was to convince you that this book is perfect. And it is. Keep coming. I've got more to share with you on how it was preserved in its original writing down to today. I've got more about why we use the particular version here we use. But this book is perfect. The question is, are you going to let it? Do a perfect work in you. Turn over to Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, if you would. I'll finish with this. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. You have Jesus in your heart this morning? Say amen if you have Jesus in your heart this morning. Amen. You're not a kook if you say amen. Okay, that's alright. People go to a football game with their chest-painted... Weird colors and they stand up and yell and scream and holler. You can say amen in church. It's all right. Um, You're less kooky than they are. I promise. If you have Jesus in your heart, then he's begun a work in you. You know what that work is? He's trying to perfect you. Look at verse 6. Being confident that he which hath begun a good work in you shall perform it. Until the day of Jesus Christ. What's the day of Jesus Christ? Jesus is going to come back and he's going to have a trumpet blown and all of us that have put our faith in Jesus, we're going to be captured up into heaven. That's called the rapture. Until that day comes, he's, he's doing a work in you. He's doing a work of righteousness in you. Christian, are you too comfortable with the way you live your life? If you're you're comfortable and you're not feeling the convicting work of God in your heart to change you, you're ignoring that, it's time to step back and say, I can be better. I can grow more. Because that day continues until you either die and see Jesus or He comes back and raptures you. You can be confident. Why? Because He's doing that work in you and He's going to do it through the Scriptures. The Scriptures. This Bible I hold is the written Word of God. Jesus is the living Word of God. You need to have a personal relationship with the living Word of God through the written Word of God. That's how you do it. Read it. Study it. Memorize it. Abide by it. I promise you, I promise you, your life, quality of life, will only get better and better and better and better. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're here today... And you've put your faith and trust in Jesus to save you. You know that you're going to heaven, not because you lived a good life, but because Jesus died for you. My friend, um, I'd like for you to testify that just by an uplifted hand. If you've put your faith and trust in Christ, would you just raise your hand for me? I know I've put my faith in Jesus. I've asked Him to come in my heart. You can put those hands down. For some of you here, you've not yet done that. You see, God gave us the Bible. He gave us the Bible to tell us how we could have our relationship with God reconciled or fixed. Sin has broken our relationship with God, and we are born condemned to hell because we're born in sin. You say, well, how do I undo that? You can't undo that with your good deeds. Your good deeds do not erase your bad deeds. Your good deeds are your good deeds. Your bad deeds are your bad deeds. And you will give an account to God for your bad deeds one day. You say, well, what do I do? How do I get those expunged off my record? You must put your faith and trust in Jesus. You must realize that Jesus became your sin on the cross and He died in your place. You must call on His name. You must, in desperation of your sin, Change from your unbelief or the believing in anything but Jesus and then choose to believe in Jesus. How many here today would say, Pastor Lejeune, I, if I were to get walk out of this church, get into a car accident and drop dead, I do not know with 100% certainty that God would let me into His heaven. And honestly, that scares me a little. If that's you and you're here today, I don't want to embarrass you, but I do want to pray for you. So their heads bowed and eyes closed, if that's you, would you just slip up your hand so I can pray for you? I see a hand. I see a couple hands. My friend, it's as simple as calling on the name of the Lord. The Bible explains that Jesus died on the cross for you. All you have to do is pray a very simple prayer, believing with all your heart that Jesus died, He rose again from the dead, and He shed His blood to wash away your sins. How many? And so after church, if you raise your hand, I'd like like to speak with you. I'd like to connect with you and share with you the truth of the Bible. I'll be standing in the back of the auditorium. I would love to have that chance. How many here today say, Pastor, God's word is not really the authority in my life the way it ought to be? I know it's there, and I know it could improve my happiness, but I haven't really let it. I haven't really totally let it. Pastor, pray for me that God's word will reign supreme in the ruling of my heart and my home. If that's you, would you slip up your hand? If that's you, would you slip up your hand? Pastor, I want God's word to be the thing that calls the shots in my life. you raise your hand, I hope you understand that might mean some radical changes along the way. but I promise you that will make your life better. How many here today say, Pastor, I'm carrying a heavy burden in my life. And I need to know that God's very near and dear to me through this trial and the struggle. If that's you, as you raise your hand? Amen. Lord, I do pray for those who raised a hand that last question. I look back over the many trials that you have taken my wife and I through. And I see that those were the times that my faith grew the strongest. And so I pray for those that are going through a hard time, that you would grow their faith, that you would be near them, that you would uh, comfort them, that they would know that you're right by their side. May you carry them through the storm. Lord, I pray for those who have raised their hand, signifying that they don't know Christ as their Savior. They're not certain of heaven. May today be the day they make that decision. And Lord, for the rest of us that are saved, may we make your Bible the authority in our life. May we allow its scriptures to be in charge. Lord, where our lives are in contradiction to it, may we be quick to make changes. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, the altars open. I encourage you to come and kneel and talk to the Lord in prayer. If you're here today and you've not yet put your faith and trust in Jesus to save you, Brother Varone, one of our deacons, is standing down front. He would love to take the Bible and share with you how you can know. If you've been saved, you've not yet been baptized. Our baptistry waters are ready. They're warm. We'd love to help you follow the Lord in that first step of obedience in Christ. If you're here today and you've been saved and baptized, but you've not yet joined our church, we would like to give you more information about that. But let's make decisions for Christ about the authority of His Word in our lives, in our places while the piano plays.